This is a production of Cornell University. As always, we'll keep it to the fastest 30 minutes in Turks. Some have asked us, uh, aren't all 30 minutes 30 minutes? And to that, I would say there are disruptions in the space-time continuum because this show is so engaging and interesting. Uh, so uh, we'll get right on with it today. This is going to be episode 12 of the Cornell Turf Show series this year. Uh, our guest today, Dr. Matt Elmore from Rutgers University. Uh, excited to have Matt on today to talk about some spring weed issues. That's always a topic of conversation. Um, so, so we'll get to that uh, with Matt in a little bit. Uh, but as always, we'll start off with uh, kind of a weekly review and update for Frank. Frank, it's snowing here. I don't know if you have anything to make us feel better up, uh, up here no, in upstate New York. Could, you know, I'm showing you a picture of a cemetery. I don't know if that makes you feel but it's certainly where I got to get out and about into the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn this week. And you're looking at one of our research plots there that's investigating using different mixes uh, for the cemetery. And this happens to be a uh, sort of old fashioned horse pasture mix that we made with John Seib um, on Long Island from All Pro Horticulture. And actually over the last couple of years has been looking uh, pretty good. So we're starting out with something a little bit funny today, Carl. Um, with, with the cemetery, it's not the most uplifting. It is, it is snowing, but it also is National Lawn Care Month. So I think it's good to uh, remind people beyond just how they look uh, as to what the, you know, how lawns sort of involved. This is our grounds week. And I've decided that, Carl, I'm going to wade right into this, brother. I'm going to get myself in a whole bunch of trouble in the next several minutes trying to wade my way through what this is and what this obsession is with banning blowers and our industry using blowers, particularly in the grounds area. This is an example of a ban in place uh, outside the fall window, right? They'll let you do it uh, for cleanup in the spring. Uh, and then uh, for leaf drop in the fall, but they want these things uh, shut down uh, during the non-fall period. So I, I poked around a little bit looking for this uh, information a little bit about this. And of course, this is a big time of it being used. And honestly, I've talked to a lot of my extension colleagues uh, in the region, and many of them have noticed as they stepped outside the cacophony of blowers that seem to dominate the sound of the landscape. And it's good, no, people are working. You know, this is all good from, uh, it's legal to do, all those things are good. Uh, but I pulled something from an article from FacilitiesNet and then from another article that was looking at uh, Palm Springs uh, in particular. And so first off, uh, people make the objection that there's, uh, you know, for one hour, they equal a car uh, driving for eight hours. Right, they're blowing, they're blowing dust uh, all over the place. Right, okay, so they're blowing. So, so you got carbon monoxide, you got dust. Uh, it's blowing air, uh, quite a bit of air around. Uh, they're noisy, uh, and and it's bad for your ears. So obviously, your uh, your operators are going to want to wear some hearing protection. Uh, in Palm Springs, I'll get back to this comment in a second. In Palm Springs. Uh, when they put the ban into effect, one out of four calls into the code enforcement office were reporting leaf blower violations. Now, of course, you know, life's kind of tough in Palm Springs, I imagine, for some folks. So calling into the code enforcement officer was one thing, but it just felt like these things are not effective. Most guys are just scouting the, you know, splouting the rules in some of these places. Now, you know, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of more regulation unless it's really well thought out. Um, and so here are these two legislators commenting in New York. Uh, this is about the ban going on that they're being proposed in New York. These are two legislators uh, in the Bronx. Uh, one of them is from the Bronx. Much of this work done by Leaf Power is often unnecessary. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. It can be done by environmentally friendly tools. I'd like them to discuss what those are. Oh, a mulching mower. Well, how does a mulching mower uh, get the stuff off the sidewalk? So, you know, I feel like, you know, everybody laughs like, oh, National Lawn Care Month. Oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, that's sort of stupid. Well, why, why should we promote these things? And then when you, you know, you realize you're dealing a lot of times with people who make rules who simply don't understand the nature of the work or are listening to, you know, one side of the story. And I don't think anybody that uses blowers like pesticides and other sorts of things wants to hurt the environment, wants to blow dust around at a loud uh, sound that hurts everybody's ears. Um, I think that it's good to sort of force innovation sometimes, but these bans are really putting a significant burden uh, on the landscape operator. So I know this has nothing to do with the conversation about weeds today, but I thought I would rant a little bit about it because we hear from a lot of people about this on a pretty regular basis. Now, listen, Carl, I'm gonna transition to your tip here and just say, well, maybe you're the kind of person that does this to their front lawn. This is some work we're currently doing with Bill Miller uh, our greenhouse professor working with the Dutch bulb industry here at Cornell. And, and uh, while he's been looking at sort of putting these things into the landscape to sort of make the landscape look pretty, I'm much more interested in using these tools, these flowers as tools for reducing mowing in the spring. Maybe I can cut back on a few mowings. Uh, how long can we go before we have to mow these things for them to maintain their perenniality? Right, so Bill's starting to ask these questions. We've got them planted in different grasses, looking at growth rates. And so we're trying to get a better idea. My idea is, hey, maybe I can save some, some mowing in the springtime. I'm not a fan of these rows that Bill likes. I like the meadowed planting approach here where we just spread them out into the lawn. So we'll, we'll give you pictures of this as we progress. Now, listen, Carl, I bet a lot of people are looking down at the ground in the spring after they blow everything away and they got a lot of bare ground. So what are your thoughts about this as a tip for the day? Yeah, so, you know, today's topic, obviously, we'll be focusing on weed control. But, um, you, know, you know, one of the first things we always talk about when it comes to weed control is, is the best way to keep weeds out is to have a dense stand of turf. And when you see this, this bare ground early in the spring, what I think I'm staring out at my yard right now where my dog, dog runs around and tears the place up is uh, why don't we just throw some seed out there and use seed, the newest, latest varieties. Uh, we have Matt Almore on today from Rutgers, which of course the breeding program at Rutgers produces so much uh, great new genetics. Uh, so our tip of the day today, a great quote from Betsy Land, underseeding is overrated. Meaning, uh, you know, it's, it's overrated not to throw seed out there. And I think, you know, sometimes maybe we overlook seed. Maybe it's too simple, it's too obvious, but um, you know, again, introducing seed, not just once during the year, but repetitive overseeding. We've seen this on athletic fields with our sports folks uh, talking about routine traffic and, and using seed to keep that dense stand of turf. Uh, really, again, underseeding is overrated. Let's get some more seed out there and, uh, and create a dense stand of turf to keep weeds out. And I think some of it, Carl, is, you know, lawns are considered perennial crops, right? It's like, wait a minute, 
what do I got to keep seeding the darn thing for? Doesn't it just keep coming up back from the ground? Or isn't there something underneath the soil that it grows from? I, I think there's this misconception that somewhat because it's a perennial plant that maybe it doesn't require uh, regular overseeding. Now, as we think about overseeding and getting grass to grow, obviously soil temperature is a big driver of this. And you can see in just a couple of days, the soil is starting to warm now up into the Hudson Valley, certainly warm enough down where Matt is in, in North Central Jersey, uh, you know, where uh, you can get pretty good germination, especially on a bright sunny day uh, where the soil might be bare. It'll warm up pretty good early on. Now, the thing that you have to keep in mind is up until these last few days, we've been well ahead of normal. Most of the region is a week to two weeks to some places like around Buffalo, three weeks ahead of normal. So, you know, you're talking about a growing season that's already been well underway, soils that are now warming up, but at the same time, it looks like the rainfall is gonna make its way along the coast. We've been uh, relatively dry for much of the Northeast, uh, parts of the Northeast. Of course, the, the, the story around this show is wherever Rich Buckley is, Matt, it's always raining a little bit. No matter when we talk to Rich, it's, it's raining wherever he is. It's not Friday. So I gotta believe it must be raining in Jersey today somewhere. So um, we know there are some areas that are getting plenty of moisture. The soil starting to warm. The season's getting ahead of itself. Um, it looks like we're going to get a, a little bit of a stall now. It looks like moving forward, we're not going to see a big advancement in temperature. Uh, we're going to sit here at normal, and normal is between mid-50s and mid-60s now. Uh, we'll get some rainfall along the coast. And as that rainfall and cool weather comes, over the last several years, we've seen increasing problems in lawn areas with red thread. This is a disease oftentimes associated, historically associated with low fertility. But as Brother Rich Buckley tells us, fungi, fungi don't read the books. And it looks like either the conditions are becoming more conducive to this particular problem, the grasses we're putting into the landscape that we might not have selected for this particular problem might be having some weaknesses. Uh, there just may be uh, more pathogen around now with the changing climate. Who knows? what the reason is, but I don't think most people would deny they're not seeing it more uh, than they used to see it. So red thread, a one we used to think we could fertilize our way out of, we're starting to see in areas now where even then they're well fertilized. When you get this growth early like we've had, and now it stalls and sits there, the fungi gets established as well. A lot of like weeds, they all get established as well. And you know, if it gets wet and if it stays a little bit warm, those things might keep growing while our grasses might not keep growing. So it's important to understand now we're gonna start seeing broadleaf weeds. And you know, we use the old Midwest growing degree day model for dandelions and 2,4-D, uh, the two formulations of that. And you can see, you know, you're really early still, even out to the 22nd, you can go to our forecast website um, you know, we put these maps in, you can see a singular day like today or way out into the future. That's the wonderful part about these particular uh, maps that, that uh, we give you some idea of what might be coming. Now, we use the GDD tracker for the pre-emergent stuff uh, just for timing. I've always been interested. It seems about a week or two ahead of where germination is. Uh, I'm kind of interested in it. It's saying it's pretty late now, Matt. 
Uh, now we're going to get the questions with you, but I got the, I didn't have you on just to answer the old softball crabgrass questions or even goosegrass questions, which I know you're doing a lot of work on these days. We're starting to get comments from the field about your pal here, false green Kylinga. Uh, yep. We've had some reports of it coming in on sod and also some Japanese stiltgrass, Matt. Yeah. Get reports of Japanese stiltgrass. So I'm going to shut up and I'm going to, you know, start with just, hey, um, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. Um, appreciate you taking the time. Let's start with the easy stuff before I get you to the tricky stuff. Um, Pre-emergent crabgrass control lining it up with what Carl might be talking about with seeding. How do you balance those two things in the lawn and grounds area, right? Because you can't deny what he said is right. Yeah, let's get some grass growing. But you also can't deny, man, crabgrass is pretty nasty the further yeah. south you get, right? So how do you balance those things? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's tricky. I mean, you, you do have to probably decide, am I going to put out a traditional pre-immersion or am I going to seed? And then if you go the route of seed, then you have to get creative with your crabgrass control if there's a lot of crabgrass in there. And you have to potentially, you know, we're looking at tenacity as an option around seeding, um, you know, or waiting for post-emergence control with something like drive or quincolorac. Um, but, you know, tenacity doesn't have the residual of your traditional pre-emergence. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you have to pick one, one strategy, I guess. But when you, well, I'm not, well, I'm not going to leave it, leave you that easy. When you yeah. use the word creative, you have to be creative with your crabgrass. And you know, the people who listen to this show, Matt, are the most creative professionals, you know, in the industry today. So I want to give you a chance to elaborate on that. You mentioned Quinclorac, you mentioned tenacity. There's a claim, um, yeah. I, you know, I know you're toying around with Fiesta. Uh, yeah. I wonder how something like that might be in the seedbed. Um, does creative mean watch and then react? Would you go post? Like we used to have that, remember that square one herbicide that had the combo? I think they stopped making it. I yeah, they don't feel yeah. about choosing the seed and then trying to follow up with the posts. Yeah, so... If you've got areas that are really bare and, you know, essentially you'd be putting out a pre-emergent on bare soil, we don't want that situation, right? That's not going to work. Um, so yeah, you basically need to come up with a game plan for those areas you're going to seed of, okay, what's my post-emergence herbicide program going to be? And how am I going to work that, you know, in with the seeding? And essentially if you seed now, you know, get a couple mowings on that, uh, on those, on those, uh, you know, seedlings, then you can start to utilize your post-emergence herbicides like, you know, things with Quinclorac or Acclaim. I mean, we've been, we have been doing some work with Fiesta. We haven't looked at it on seedlings, um, but that's probably something we need to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think you just need to have a game plan and you need to be ready to make those applications and don't wait until the plants get too big because yeah. then you, once you get behind the eight ball, especially in a new seed bed, you know, you're going to be, it's going to be an uphill battle. So if, you know, by say you seeded next week, let's say, uh, you know, by May 15th, end of May, you really need to make sure you're scouting those areas so that you can make the herbicide application if you need it. Right. Um, yeah. And then maybe, you know, so that would be my strategy, I guess, if I'm, if I'm seeding. 
Yeah, and that's good because creative also means the ability to be responsive, right? If you're running a traditional thing where you visit and this is what it is and that's that, you know, the pre-emergent approach certainly works there. Now, let me move on to the other one that that tends to be the scourge in in most landscapes is is now what you've got me concerned about these last couple of years is goosegrass. How does goosegrass fit into this starting and stopping uh, of the early season? The early applications that we have to sometimes make uh, for crabgrass and maybe even kylinga and maybe even for stiltgrass, I, I don't presume to know that yet. Um, and how does that jive with goosegrass pressure, which can germinate even later, right? I mean, it comes in later and germinates later. How, how's the, how do you jive that with goosegrass stuff, Matt? These pre-emergence programs? Yeah. Yeah, you you probably, if goosegrass is a real problem, you need to think about a second pre-emergence application, probably, or you need to be ready with the post-emergence herbicides. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, the post-emergence herbicides can be a good option if you don't want to make multiple pre-emergence applications, because I know sometimes there's concern about that, um, multiple pre-emergence applications, especially on athletic fields. Um, so it's, you know, the, the herbicide options are a little different. And I think that's a key is that as goosegrass seems to start to move more throughout the region, you just need to make sure you can identify it, even when it's relatively small, differentiate it from crabgrass, because, you know, a real tool in the toolbox for crabgrass is quinclorac drive, and that doesn't do anything to goosegrass. So, may, you know, um, so then, you know, if goosegrass is a problem, you need to look maybe to herbicides, post-emergence herbicides like Acclaim and Pylex. And again, just trying to be proactive um, and making applications when the plants are small is going to be a big help to use less pesticide. Um, and so, but, you know, the, the big thing with both of these weeds is, is kind of going back to what Carl said is really, you know, the herbicide is a good tool, but you got to think about creating turf competition. And especially with goosegrass, it seems like it uh, really does not do well if there's good turf competition. Um, so, you know, anything you can do right now to actually get out in front of that goosegrass, get some turf competition, I think will pay dividends later in the summer in terms of reduced uh, herbicide applications, reduced goosegrass pressure. But it is becoming, you know, more of a problem. I don't think we have to worry about goosegrass emergence yet. Soil temps are still cool and we're not getting now, sometimes this time of year, we get those wild temperature swings where we get a few 80 degree days and then it cools back down. We've kind of just been steadily warming, it seems, this year. So, um, you know, things are, we're starting to see crabgrass emergence and, and I think we're a ways away from goosegrass. But yeah, I think, and the kind of, I know I'm kind of going off here, but with, with goosegrass, I think the thing to be concerned about too is uh, if we get weather late in the season that, you know, wet conditions late in the summer, or we get, you know, diseases that come in and thin out the turf. That's, I think, where, where goosegrass really gets a foothold is you get pythium, you get gray leaf spot, you get flooding. Um, that's where it seems like if we get that, those weather conditions in August that, that you know, you really actually can get some goosegrass uh, coming in. Well, I just love that you got to beat on goosegrass because I think that's the way we have to be with these issues. We got to be out ahead of it, seeing it coming and knowing how to adapt and adjust because it's not just you use different products. You have to approach a post-emergent strategy differently than you approach a pre-emergent strategy, no matter no matter what they are. So let's get to, how do you like the, uh, 
Have you found any value in these spring dandelion models for really being good times for these apps? Have you ever played around with that? And what is your thought about spring broadleaf weed control in general, recognizing it's post-emergent? Yeah, I haven't, we haven't done any really work here looking at different timings. Um, there, yeah, I think the growing degree day models that are out there are pretty good. Um, and I think the key is just make sure that the weeds are actively growing. And I think avoiding sometimes that peak flowering period can help too, even though that's when they're most obvious. Yeah. So um, yeah, we haven't done a lot there. I mean, the, you know, the, the products are, are pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Don't need to go anymore. I just wanted to throw it in there because we use that model, and yeah. a lot of people like spring wheat, spring control because that's when you see them. But of course, we know the best time to do it is in the latter part of the season yeah. for deeper, longer-lasting kill than you would get in the spring, which, in my opinion, sometimes amounts to a burn on bigger plants that wind up needing a treatment again in the fall anyway. Is, is that consistent with your thinking? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and I think the model's good because it helps uh, prevent, you know, too early of an application when things are maybe too cool. So, um, all right. So listen, let's get to the real tough ones now. Okay. You know, you've been playing around with false green Kylinga. You're gonna, let, let's explain this to everybody uh, right away because it's different than green Kylinga. Yep. Uh, it is a warm season plant, likely closer to a sedge uh than a grass right it's in the sedge yeah. i believe it is a sedge yeah. yeah so yeah i mean it's a perennial so there's a lot of similarities between it and yellow nut sedge um there's some time control in these days yeah and yeah nut sedge is a challenge i think it always will be there's some new you know some of the new stuff coming out of i saw from nebraska and other stuff it seems like you know something i want to follow up on is early season applications for nut sedge control. Um, you know, we always talk about, well, you know, make those applications by mid-June before the longest day of the year, before you start to get a lot of tuber production. But there's some stuff that, you know, suggests that maybe making an application in May or late May, you know, shortly after emergence might, might, might help. So um, I'd say it's a little bit experimental for now, but that's kind of what I got my eye on in terms of, well, maybe we need to start making these applications earlier because those plants can actually start to produce tubers, the nut sedge, that is four to six weeks after they merge. You know, um, so especially in bare soil areas, you know, we're not too far away from seeing those first nut sedge plants come out of the ground yeah. in this area. Um, what about the Kailinga? What about the false yeah. fruit Kailinga? Because yeah. it seems like the people who have this, yeah. it's a big problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really can come in and take over an area because it, it, you know, nut sedge mixes well with the turf, you could say. The Kalinga just tends to choke it out in dense mats. Um, so it's a perennial as well. It doesn't have tubers, but it has rhizomes that really stay pretty close to the surface. So, uh, you know, sometimes a sod cutter is a good way to get rid of it, uh, but obviously very laborious. So maybe not an option in all situations. Um, there's there's herbicide options and really I think in serious infestations combining that herbicide with some sort of seeding operation is good. Um, and so, you know, there's the herbicides that we've found success with are things like the halosulfuron um, and the uh, amazosulfuron as well. The Solero has been really effective. Uh, Sulfentrazone is another option, uh, very effective, especially if you can get to the higher you know, end of that uh, rate range on the label, get to six or eight ounces per acre. 
Right. That's what, not all of those are labeled in New York. That's yeah, that's a good point. I'm yeah, the self venture zone and the Solero. Sorry, the Solero is not labeled yeah, in New yeah. York. Um, yeah, so, so that's very interesting. Now, listen, here's the thing. I, I Again, I'm as interested in the sort of strategy with this plant than I am necessarily the products because yeah. it's sort of difficult to control weeds. You got to find the time to exploit when they're at their weakest or when you're whatever you spray is going to give you the most bang for your buck. Yeah. So what is the timing for this deal? Yeah, good question. So really, um, early, early spring, um, well, before the calendar technically turns to summer, sorry, late spring, you know, we're looking late May to mid-June after you get some emergence, but we have, you know, evaluated these things in mid-summer and they don't work as well. Um, so you, it is a spring, you know, kind of application, or you can wait until the fall. And sometimes I've been recommending that because if you've got a situation where your entire property is Kalinga, well, then you're going to kill that off before we go into the hot part of the year. So we might want to keep that green cover during the summer. Um, so another option is to spray these things in uh, late August and then do a seeding about a month later. Um, and that that has been working pretty well in some of our research. So the key is that you need to, to make the application three to four weeks before you seed um, because they're toxic you know, they're going to, they'll injure young seedlings if you spray them and then seed to the same week. All right. So, Listen, we're getting close to wrapping up. I want to ask you about stiltgrass. I've heard Randy Prostak, our brother up in yeah. UMass, say it's a, a shade tolerant, warm season grass, something you don't see very often. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, the status of this problem in lawns that you are aware of? And some some simple strategies for controlling. Yeah, it's getting a lot worse. And what I have seen is it seems like there's biotypes that are actually have moved out of the understory of the forest where we don't mow, and they have adapted to this frequent mowing environment, which is a little little concerning. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other challenge is that it's you know it's finding a niche where it germinates before we've put out our crabgrass pre-emergence. So it you know it, that's another reason it's kind of spreading. I think just like goosegrass has found a way to evade our typical pre-emergence program, so has the stiltgrass. So yeah, it's going to get worse. It's a challenge. Um, it's good you know good if you're in the weed business, I guess. Uh, but well, let's not gloat. Yeah. Let's at least give them something they can spray on it if they yeah, see. Yeah. yeah. So a claim is the only post-emergence option registered for post-emergence control. Um, and the key is to get out, you know, know where it was the previous year and make the applications relatively early in the spring, because once it starts to get big, it's, you know, you're not going to be able to control it. So typically I get, you know, a lot of phone calls in July and August, by then it's too late. So try to go in those areas and look for it right now, actually, it's already germinated for, for most of us probably, um, or getting close to it. So look where areas where it was problematic in the past. If you see seedlings now, uh, that means you've got a problem and you can make a claim applications uh, right now at relatively low rates and still get good control. So it's because it's not a, you know, you can save yourself some money and not go with that full, you know, full rate. You can go, you can look at the label and it recommends lower rates for smaller plants. So. There you go, Carl. A pro tip as Matt wraps up. Any questions for him uh, from the, from the audience or maybe a comment for you? Yeah, uh, no questions from the audience, but you know, I think one of the themes I hear today from you guys talking is, is the need to be kind of proactive, especially if you're adopting this post strategy where maybe you're 
using seed and, and a post-emergent uh, control strategy. If I'm a landscaper and I've got a bunch of different properties, Matt, have you seen examples of, of, of those sorts of people being successful? They've got 100, 200, 300 properties. Um, have you seen examples where they can be proactive on a bunch of different properties um, as opposed to kind of a blanket pre-treatment program and and uh, have they have you seen examples of them being flexible in, in that kind of uh, program? Yeah, great question. I've I've had a couple calls with some large lawn care companies, and they are getting into site-specific management in a lot of cases. That's both within the property and then within different properties. So I think, you know, there's it's a lot of just how do you manage the 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 um the data that you have and your your applications, and then adapting some sort of spray technology that's going to allow you to be you know, some sort of application technology that's going to allow you to, to, to switch it up between properties. So there are people doing it um, and it's good to hear because, you know, as we start to see more weeds, uh, more weeds adapting to our management strategies, we're going to need to be flexible on a large scale. So great answer, Matt. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Today. Yeah, it's great to see you guys. It's so great. Yeah. Thanks for hosting us. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Yep. Uh, as always, we hit it right on the nail, 30 minutes. Uh, thanks, everyone, our live attendees. If you're listening on podcast or YouTube, uh, we'll be back again next Thursday for our 13th show this year. If you've got any questions, reach out to us, Twitter, email me. Uh, if you've got questions for our guests, uh, we're always happy to answer those on show. Uh, but until then, for me, Carl, my account got hacked and I'm permanently suspended. <laughs> I'm dead break. in the Twitter world. <laughs> getting picked off twitter world but uh I got all right, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see everybody hopefully no more hacks in the uh, twitter accounts matt thanks again yeah see you everybody guys this has been a production of cornell university on the web at cornell.edu